It is unusual for me to be sympathetic with a violent criminal. I have a pretty strong sense of justice. My childhood hero was Marshal Matt Dillon of Gunsmoke. And now it's Police Commissioner Frank Reagan of Blue Bloods. So does that tell you anything about me? <laughs> I tend to think that anyone who chooses to victimize someone else should suffer the consequences, but I have to tell you that there is one murderer, pretty well known, for whom I feel genuine compassion. His name is Theodore Ted Kaczynski, better known as the Unabomber, the solitary, the lonely bomber of the 80s and 90s. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm glad he was captured. And that he pled guilty, saved the taxpayers a lot of money, and was sentenced to prison for his nationwide bombing campaign that killed three innocent people and wounded 23 others. But still, do you know his story? Kaczynski was born a child prodigy. He excelled academically early on and enrolled in Harvard University at age 16 where he earned his undergraduate degree, but along the way in school, he was socially isolated and he was consistently bullied since he was often promoted into classes with older students. And during this time at Harvard, he was one of 22 undergrads secretly used as a guinea pig in what were considered to be ethically questionable experiments designed to measure psychological reactions to extreme stress. Kaczynski was a part of a group that was regularly subjected to what were described as angry and personally abusive attacks, assaults on their egos and their character and their beliefs. From Harvard, he went on to earn a Ph.D. in mathematics from the University of Michigan, and by the time he was 25 years old, he was a professor at UC Berkeley, where he taught for two years before moving to Lincoln, Montana, into a remote cabin in the woods, without electricity, without water, without sanitary facilities. And he lived there as a recluse, and he became a domestic terrorist, launching a bombing campaign that targeted universities and airlines from 1978 to 1995. One thing, one thing was conspicuously missing throughout the Unabomber's life and early years until his imprisonment. What was it, you asked? Why, friends, it was the church. His parents were secular humanists. They had no interest in spiritual life. The discovery of his 167 IQ in the fifth grade put him into contact with teachers and into intellectually astute peers who focused only on personal achievements and personal rewards. And walking this path eventually led him to a God-forsaken 
destiny. Kaczynski's attorneys wanted him to plead innocent by reason of insanity to avoid the death penalty. He flatly refused. He did not consider himself to be insane, and frankly, I agree with his self-assessment. He wasn't insane. His problem was simply that he had a God-shaped void in his life. He was denied the experience of learning about the love of Jesus. He was deprived of the relationships uniquely experienced in the community life of the church. And he's locked up, serving a life sentence without parole today because of it. Well, the fact is that we're all hardwired to need both a vertical relationship with God and horizontal relationships with others. A solitary person will never arrive at a good place in life. John Ortberg cites a landmark study of 7,000 individuals, and it revealed that isolated people were three times more likely to die prematurely than those with strong relationships, even those that had bad health habits. Smoking, poor diet, alcohol abuse, if they had strong relational ties, they lived significantly longer than people who had great health habits but were isolated. And what is true physically is also true spiritually. If we want to maintain a healthy, healthy lifelong walk with Christ, we need community. To stay faithful, we must stay connected, and that's why God provided the church. But sadly, too many today want nothing to do with the church. They dismissively refer to it as organized religion. And this low view of the church is prevalent in our generation, and it's why some people will attend worship services only occasionally. They will participate casually. They will serve undependably. They will give infrequently and they will criticize freely. A few weeks ago, Kayleen and I were in Louisville on a Friday evening. It was her birthday, and I surprised her with reservations at a dinner theater. So we arrived early, we sat down to eat, and since it was just the two of us and all the tables seated four or more, we shared our table with another couple. After going through the buffet line, they sat down across from us, and they immediately bowed their heads to give thanks. And I think my first words to them were, we certainly got at the right table tonight. After our mutual introductions during the course of the evening, we learned that while these folks were believers who, according to him, talked to the Lord every day, they were not a part of any church. They were committed to Jesus, but they wanted nothing to do with the church. And I sort of worked into the conversation that, Maybe being seated across from a pastor and his wife might be some kind of a sign. <laughs> the title of Philip Yancey's book, Church, Why Bother, describes the attitude of these good folks that we sat across from that night and many others. Disillusioned with imperfect congregations, they, they take a just Jesus and me 
approach to spiritual life. But the text this weekend and next weekend, Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 3, does not allow us to do that. These chapters remind us that while the church may sometimes be dysfunctional, it is still divine. And while it is sometimes discouraging, it is also our destiny in Christ. Eugene Peterson writes, we would prefer to go directly from the awesome vision of Christ in Revelation 1 to the glorious ecstasies of heaven in Revelation 4 and 5, but we can't do it. We can't skip Revelation 2 and 3. The church has to be negotiated first. The only way from Christ to heaven is through the church. Listen, friends, the New Testament reveals that there's no salvation outside the church and that you're actually neglecting your salvation if you neglect the church of Jesus in your life priorities. And Hebrews 2.3 asks, how shall we escape? How shall we escape the wrath of God if we neglect, if we ignore such a great salvation? There's no way to misunderstand passages like Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23 and following that reveal that Christ is the head of the church, His body of which He is the Savior, that Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that is the church, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing uh, with water through the Word, that Christ will present her, that is the church, to Himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless, that Christ feeds and cares For the church, it's right there in Ephesians 5. And later the apostle John would write in Revelation 21, 9, one of the seven angels came to me and said, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Folks, that's the scene in heaven he's talking about here. That's the bride of Christ, the church he's talking about here. A believing community is the context for living out a life of faith because love cannot exist in isolation away from others and grace cannot be experienced privately cut off from others and hope cannot endure in solitude separated from others the church is not optional it's essential for our salvation in this life and the greater life to come So Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3 also reminds us that while faith is certainly personal, it is never private. The vision of Revelation was given to John, but it was given for the churches. And the message in this book is not for isolated believers. It is for seven churches. Specific local churches, just like Crossroads, each in a different city, just like Evansville, Newburgh. These seven churches are called lampstands, and the messages to them are relevant to all churches in any location and in every generation, each one called to light their own unique corner of the world. Well, obviously, tonight, we're not going to be able to look at all seven of them, so we're going to have to take four tonight, and we'll take three next week, and I want you to notice that Jesus is the one doing the speaking. If you have a red letter, 
version of the New Testament, you've got red all over those pages. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. And he speaks to each one of these churches a word first of commendation and then a word of correction. And that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to walk down through chapter 2. We're going to look at each one of these churches. What does Jesus commend and then what does Jesus correct? First, the church in Ephesus. Look at the word of commendation there. Revelation chapter 2, verse 2, Jesus said to the Christians in Ephesus, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. You have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. That's the commendation. And then there's a word of correction in Revelation 2, 4. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Now, this church at Ephesus was well taught and it was a well led church. And these Christian people were grounded, they were strong, they were not naive. Paul had stayed there and taught them for three years. And he had developed deep friendships among the Ephesian elders. And when it finally came time for them to part company, they all wept and embraced. Paul and the Ephesian elders. Timothy was a long-term pastor-teacher at Ephesus. And this is where Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos were located. And the text says that the Ephesians were discerning people and they did not tolerate men with evil intent or ungodly agendas in their leadership because just as today there are people with evil intent and ungodly agendas in the church, there were people then that were the same way. And if someone came into their orbit and claimed to be an apostle, I put him to the test. They put him to the test to see if he was genuine. They'd persevered, which means that they had maintained their convictions over a long period of time, despite problems, despite difficulties. And this is all so good about this church in Ephesus. But often... Often when there's a focus on deeds and hard work and perseverance and when there are hardships and challenges, love can kind of get pushed aside, set aside, relegated to the back burner. And that's apparently what happened in Ephesus by the time Revelation was written. Many of the original church founders in Ephesus had died, and this is the second generation that's come along, and they seem to have lost some of their zeal for God. They were a busy church, no question about that. Lots of good work being done for Jesus in the community, but they had ceased to be motivated by love for the Lord. The church in Ephesus did not get off track doctrinally, but they got off track devotionally this church they were straight as an arrow (laughs) but they were missing the bullseye they had lost their first love so what is first love well it's 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 honeymoon love you remember when you walked her to the car as you opened the car door for her she tripped and you said oh angel love poo you almost fell down. I'm so sorry. Is my schmoopsie okay? 
Now when it happens, you laugh and say, way to go, Grace. (laughs) Or you used to walk through the mall holding hands, swinging hands, and now you walk ten paces ahead of her saying, hurry up, Pocahontas. Or you used to wait patiently while she got ready to go out. Now you sit in the car and honk the horn. Well, men, recover your honeymoon love for your wife. And family of God, recover your honeymoon love for the Lord. You remember when you first became a Christian? You loved to worship him. You look forward to your quiet times in his presence. You loved serving and giving and encouraging others and sharing your faith. And you may still be doing these things, but is it out of a sense of duty? Or is it out of devotion? Are you on autopilot? Or are you fully engaged? Listen, if you're a second or a third generation Christ follower, be where God doesn't have any grandchildren he only has children take hard ownership of your relationship with Jesus don't let your love for the Lord grow cold well what does Jesus say to the church in Smyrna look at the word of commendation Revelation chapter 2 verse 9 he says I know your afflictions and your poverty yet you are rich exclamation point and then notice the word of correction revelation 2:10 do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer be faithful even to the point of death and i will give you a crown of life this church in smyrna was under pressure the word affliction here in the greek means to be crushed beneath a weight and then there are actually two greek words for poverty One means to have nothing extravagant, nothing superfluous. The other Greek word means you have nothing at all. And this is the second word that is used in the text here. They had nothing at all. Extreme poverty is what the Lord is talking about. It's the result, I think, of persecution being visited on the early Christians in Smyrna. Likely they had nothing at all because of being burned out or being imprisoned or having their homes looted by a heathen mob. And Revelation 2.10 reveals that they were about to suffer 10 days of intense persecution. So Jesus commends them because in spite of their afflictions, in spite of their poverty, they were rich in the way that counts. Rich in faith, rich in devotion. Life was not easy for Christians in the ancient world, yet the risen Lord warns them not to fear, but to be faithful even to the point of death. Because physical death, the first death, which we must all suffer if the Lord tarries, it is the gateway to life. And Jesus adds here in verse 11, he who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death, that is, hell. Some of the afflictions suffered by the Christians in Smyrna was even internal in the form of slander. It's there in the text. 
But in spite of external or internal suffering, the risen Lord commands, be faithful even to the point of death. And the application to us is to be faithful to Him even though your earthly family may shun you, even though your co-workers on the job may verbally abuse you, even though your classmates may ridicule you, be faithful to Him even though someone in your church family may have hurt or disappointed you. And Graham Lotz is Billy Graham's daughter and she wrote a book entitled, Wounded by God's People. And she tells about how she and her husband were once expelled and banned from a church. And in fact, she gives graphic detail of what happened. People actually stood and applauded as they walked out of the church building, as they were banished from the assembly. And you know, lesser people would consider that justification to walk away from the church altogether. But they connected to a new church fellowship the very next week. We have a gracious Christian couple in our church who told me that they had actually been expelled from three different churches in the past, yet they didn't quit. They faithfully served with us here at Crossroads for several years. They are wonderful, positive encouragers. And maybe you are among those who've been wounded So wounded that you've confused God's imperfect people with your perfect Father in heaven. And maybe you have turned your back on Him as a result of a bad church experience. You have no justification to walk away from Him because of a poor representation by His people. Or you may be the one, you may be the one who did the wounding as you look back from the vantage point of the passing of time and increased wisdom, you look back and you realize you did the wounding. And you may feel unworthy of a restoration to a warm, loving relationship with God and His people. But I'm telling you tonight, whatever your hurts may be, begin begin your healing journey back into His presence, back into His family. God loves the wounded and God forgives those who have done the wounding. Well, then the risen Lord addresses the church in Pergamum. Look at the word of commendation, Revelation 2.13. Jesus said, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. There's the commendation. Here's the word of correction, Revelation 2.14. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. The Christians in this city were commended because they were committed to live where Satan has his throne. So think about about the intellectual cities of the northeastern United States. Or think about the hedonistic cities along the California coast, or thinking about, think about the materialistic cities of the Pacific Northwest. That's challenging to live a holy life in some of these places and to bring up a godly family in some of these places. It can be done. Some of our strongest churches are in those places too because where it's darkest, the light 
shines brightest. Well, these Christians understood that the Christian life, these Christians in Pergamum understood the Christian life is not an escape. It is a conquest. And these early Christ followers in Pergamum did not run away from the Las Vegases and the New Orleans of their day. They stayed. And they remained true. And they did not renounce their faith in Jesus. But Jesus knew this church well. And so he warned them to confront those in the church who were beginning to drift into worldliness. The teaching of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans was a reference to the efforts by some to persuade Christians that there's nothing wrong with moderate conformity to the world's standards. Okay, now I have a lot to say here and not enough time to say it. But is anyone out there sick and tired of hearing that it's okay to sleep around before marriage? Is anyone out there sick and tired of seeing this shameless display of unmarried or married bedroom scenes? Is anyone out there sick and tired of hearing that we human beings have accidentally evolved from lower life forms? Is there anyone out there sick and tired of seeing people who celebrate the gutter life as though it were the good life. Jesus will hold it against us as a church if we passively stand by and tolerate worldliness creeping into our lives, into our homes, into our families. We've got to push back. We've got to hold the line. We've got to resist compromise. That's the teaching of the Balaamites and the Nicolaitans. Compromise. Don't do it. Finally, Jesus says to the church in Thyatira, by way of commendation in Revelation 2.19, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. That's his commendation. Now here's his correction in Revelation 2.20. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who misleads into sexual immorality. Do not hold to her teaching. Well, on the positive side, the Christ followers in Thyatira were commended for growing in their discipleship, doing more than they did at first. That's a good thing. That's great progress. But there was apparently also a tendency in this church by some to embrace or at least compromise with the carnality that was also present in Pergamum. However, this time it's tied to a different name. It's not tied to the name of Balaam. It's not tied to the name of the Nicolaitans, but the name of Jezebel. Now, this is likely a reference to a literal woman who probably was not named Jezebel, but whose character was like the Old Testament character Jezebel. She was a persecutor of prophets. She was resistant to the word of God. Jezebel in the Old Testament was a seductress. She was sexually immoral and she was greedy. And have you noticed there are not very many girls that are named Jezebel. This combination of influences, disdain for godly leaders, rejection of the Bible, 
addiction to sexual stimulus and money would arrest their spiritual growth and eventually destroy their spiritual life. Sex outside of the marriage commitment always hurts, always hurts someone. It hurts God when we choose to abuse His gift and satisfy our desires by disobedience to His will, His best. Saying, in effect, we know better than you do about this, Lord. It not only hurts God, but it hurts others because it always involves someone else and causes them to sin, and it hurts you. Damaging your soul by alienation from God, damaging your mind by implanting permanent memories, damaging to your personality because of guilt and shame, damaging perhaps to your body by disease or being responsible for an unplanned pregnancy. And it hurts your present family, and it will hurt your future family, and it will hurt your witness as a Christian, and it will hurt your church family. Immorality creeping into the church. (laughs) Still one of Satan's most effective weapons in spiritual warfare. Just this past week, maybe some of you saw it, Reverend Juan McFarlane, Montgomery, Alabama, Revealed, stood up and revealed to his congregation that he had full-blown AIDS, diagnosed since 2003. He further confessed that he had had numerous sexual encounters with women, some from his own church, in the ensuing years. And I am telling you the spiritual collateral damage of such dark behavior cannot be known this side of eternity. Well, as we close tonight, there's one word that appears four times in Revelation 2 that captures the most, the single most important response that we make to the correction of Jesus. It is the word in verses 5, verse 16, verse 21, verse 22. It is the word repent such a good word such a freeing word means to be sorry it means to be sorry and to change do you notice the heart back here the broken heart there's there's the broken heart of the father It's revealed in this text. You see it between the lines, in the words of Jesus. His heart is broken when we're unresponsive to him. But a broken heart is also a symbol of repentance. A broken heart is what we inflict on our heavenly Father by our pride, by our stubborn wills, by our refusal to humble ourselves before Him. Broken heart in us (laughs) is what brings us to the place of repentance. So the church unveiled tonight and next week. It's a mixed bag. There's so much to commend in the church. But there will always be something to correct. 
for now. For now, we're flawed and imperfect, but I'm telling you, we're also saved and we're in the process of being perfected. In anticipation of the day when Jesus will return and present the church, the church to himself, a glorious church without spot, without wrinkle, without blemish, and to be ready for that day you got to make a decision about him and his church today. And so tonight, if you have a decision to make about, about Jesus, about his church, if you do not want to break the heart of God, and if your own heart is broken enough to come to him in repentance... As we dismiss tonight, in just a few moments, if you'll just remain seated, our section hosts are prepared to come to you and talk with you, counsel with you. And so just now, let's stand. We'll worship together. We'll close our service. If you have a decision, you just remain seated after we're dismissed tonight.